I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. I used to know a, a gent named Gregory Bateson. He's an anthropologist, biologist, uh, epistemologist. He was married to Margaret Mead for an interesting while. And uh, he was one of the first people to work with dolphins, dolphin communication, dolphin learning, things like that. They were working in Hawaii, and he was part of the dolphin sort of park there. So they were doing behavioral training as well as behavioral study of how these dolphins did things. There was one really smart female dolphin they were working with one day, and the deal was that the dolphin would be let out of the holding tank into the performance area, and what they wanted from her was new tricks. And so she would go around and do random things and do whatever was done before, but she wouldn't get the reward of a fish for doing what was done before. They were waiting for a new trick. And this one session, she came out, she did the previous trick she'd done, the previous trick before that, no fish. Um, finally, she did something new, and she got the fish. And then she got really excited. Now, she was supposed to take a break, so they took her off to the holding tank again. And five minutes went by, and they brought her back in to go through that process again. She was completely excited, swimming around. And before they could stop her, she, they did, she did 20 new tricks <laughs> that nobody had ever seen before. And she had gone from learning, in Gregory's view, to what he called meta-learning. She had learned about learning. So we have an exceptionally skillful fish dolphin for you tonight. Uh, you're the fish, he's the dolphin, Timothy Ferris. Good evening. This is a big auditorium. Thanks for coming. I hope to live up to my, my dolphin kin. Very, very cool video if you have a chance to watch. Uh, dolphins in front of mirrors are one of the few animals that actually have the self-awareness to recognize themselves in a mirror. Accelerated learning, meta skills, skills. We all have skills to learn. We have things to learn. And in the fire hose of information that is the digital age, it will be increasingly important, certainly, if you want to scale your life, scale your career, scale your enjoyment of life. And this is the subject of today's talk. It is the first time that I'm giving this particular presentation, so if it's a little choppy, please bear with me. We will have plenty of time for Q&A, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to, and I apologize for not having time uh, for signing any books, but I will make it up to you guys, and I'm already noodling on how to do that. So thank you all for coming, and without further ado, let's jump right into it. So the contrarian ethos, my good man, Mark Twain, so whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. So seldom is the most common way of doing something or the best practice actually the best way to go about learning it, performing it, excelling at it. And that is what I'd like you to return to as your refrain as we look at the different examples that I'll put forth. This odd-looking molecule here is actually a peptide hormone, and it is vasopressin. Uh, perhaps, I should say, uh, desmopressin, because that's the synthetic version of vasopressin, which is an antidiuretic hormone. And my interest in learning 
started at the biochemical level, really, when I started digging into it. And so I used to use, and I don't suggest this, of course, I would never suggest such a thing, I used to use uh, antidiuretic hormone as a nasal spray, which is typically used for uh, bedwetting children, actually. Uh, but it has some spectacular effects on short-term memory. So I would take two sniffs, one in each nostril, prior to Chinese character quizzes. And it was phenomenally effective. But I decided, you know, maybe snorting antidiuretic hormone, not the best long-term strategy. <laughs> so I started to do a bit more analysis, looking at more uh, structured, methodical approaches to learning. And for me, when people ask me, what is your goal in life? What is success to you? I've thought about it quite a lot because I get asked so frequently, and my answer is to love, be loved, and to never stop learning. So the learning is very, very key to me. What you're looking at right here is the Joyo Kanji Hyo, and these are, in this particular case, 1,945 common use characters in the Japanese language. I bought this at age 15. It's since been increased, the number of characters, but 1,945. This, to me, encapsulated the Japanese language and became my target for my first year abroad. My first really extended trip overseas at all, which was in Japan. Going from Long Island to Japan was quite a culture shock. But I did ultimately nail this list and, as a result, was able to speak, read, write Japanese. And if you've studied any languages, perhaps you have avoided studying languages, you have certainly heard a few things. Number one is that children learn languages faster than adults. I think it's complete nonsense, personally. If you've ever talked to a three-year-old, like, how good is that English? Not very good. <laughs> it's really not too impressive. Spent three years studying a language, you should be better than that. <laughs> there is a great book called In Other Words, one of the co-authors is Hakuta, H-A-K-U-T-A, -A, which I think underscores the fact that as an adult, you have a framework, you have existing knowledge to hang that language, that new language, and you can learn much, much faster. Secondly, to really master language, it'll take your entire life. Also, in my experience, complete nonsense. I think that anywhere from two months to 12 months, more than sufficient to become functionally fluent in any language that I've encountered so far which would include Chinese, Japanese, Gaelic, Irish, probably the hardest <laughs> that I've bumped into because no one speaks it. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, so it, it's worth testing the assumptions. It's worth testing the common knowledge that you hear. So the guiding process, and I'm going to use a lot of examples from language learning because I think it's so intimidating for people, but we're also going to look at physical skills. So not only the declarative knowledge, the data, but the procedural, the actual movement, sports, etc. So the guiding process. So Diesel's face, what the hell does that mean? Uh, the way you can remember this entire process is imagining Vin Diesel's face grimacing at you, in like excruciating detail, just like right up in your mug. All right, so what this means is D is for deconstruction, identifying the minimal, discrete, usable units in whatever this subject is that you're trying to master. And when I say master, typically I mean you're in the upper 5%, so the 95-plus percentile. Selection is a la the Joyo Kanji. What can I eliminate to get to the 20% that will yield me 80-plus percent of the output? So very classic 
Pareto 80-20 analysis, but what, what is the minimal effective dose? And we'll come back to that. Sequencing, uh, whether it's in golf, grammar, swimming technique, we'll look at swimming, how do you then take those uh, Pareto identified units and sequence them in the right fashion? This is where most people make the biggest mistakes is in the sequencing. And then the latter three are separated out because they're particularly important for anything uh, specifically mental. But we have frequency, and we'll, we'll come to that, whether it's exercise or memorization. How do you space things out? Compression. Uh, and that is how do you compress what you need to know into some type of holistic but, but very graspable unit, like one page. I'll give examples of that. And then last, encoding, mnemonics. How do you actually memorize this stuff? And how do you recall it? So this is a lot. I'm going to give uh, a handful of examples. It's going to be a bit like wandering through the, the, the mind of a madman. Hopefully it'll make sense. If not, we'll hit it in the Q&A. But Vin Diesel, in your face. All right. So deconstruction, anomalies and extremes. Uh, deconstruction for me starts with looking for anomalies and extremes. What I mean by that is if I'm trying to identify a skill and then learn that skill, I want to find the people who are good at it despite not being built for it. This would be one such example. So here you have a supposedly normal high school girl, 134 pounds, who just so happens uh, to deadlift 405 pounds for repetitions off the floor without any wraps of any type. She's a sprinter, and so the deadlift, uh, for people who are not familiar with it, is sumo deadlift at least, Barbell, plates, come down, and then you pick it up like so. So she can do that with 405 pounds for repetitions. And she looks completely normal. <laughs> Another example of this would be Brian McKenzie. Brian McKenzie was in the four-hour body because he is able to train people for 50, 100-mile races while having them run no longer than 10 kilometers, 10 miles in a given training cycle. Eight weeks from ground zero, no running experience, to running, let's say, a mountainous 50-kilometer or 50-mile race. So I'm looking for not only the people who are best at what they do, let's say a Scott Jurek, who's six foot two, 140 pounds, built like a spider. He's perfect for, let's say, the Western States 100 race. But I'll use him by asking, who are the people who are good at this who shouldn't be? Finding the anomalies and then asking them a few simple questions. Are you the only one? Have you replicated this? Could you train someone to do this? And my recommendation for seeking those people out is don't go for the person who's currently in the limelight. So let's just say it's New York Times best-selling authors and you want to learn about publishing. Well, don't go after the people who are currently on the list. Go after the people who might be crying crocodile tears like me in a few years, who were, let's say, on the list two years ago. Uh, and they will be, in many cases, very easy to find. And the, the fastest route for that is going through a personal blog. Even if they have a very, very high-trafficked group blog, look for their personal blog. So this is what I was able to do after trying to replicate this anomaly that I showed you in the previous slide. This is at Mission Cliffs, right here in San Francisco on Harrison. It's a rock climbing gym. Uh, I actually go there because it's one of the few places that let me, lets me use chalk while lifting weight. Uh, lots of dramatic breathing going on. Okay. All right, so what I said was no wraps. What I want to underscore here is that I went from having a maximum, because I have weak, 
uh, I have weak grip. I went from having a maximum deadlift of about 300 to that was about 585, and I got up to between 650 and 700. That's with a double overhand grip like this. That's the weakest grip you can possibly use. It's not alternating. It's not a hook grip with the thumbs. It's not straps. Double overhand grip, just like so. And that was done in about eight weeks. And the dose, so to speak, was uh, two or three sessions per week, about five minutes of total muscular tension per week. That's it. And the discrete unit, right, looking at the deconstruction, was a segment of the lift. So what if we did the opposite of best practice? And I want to share with you the questions that I ask myself, because I think the questions are oftentimes more important than the answer. You have to ask the right questions. And this is one of the right questions. So when people train the deadlift, there are a few things that they do. Uh, and quite often, the advice that you'll receive is you should do rack pulls, meaning in your strongest range of motion, you should pull from here to here, which is what I demonstrated. The way I trained for that was, in fact, doing two or three repetitions in my weakest range of motion from the floor to about here. One, two, sets done. That's all I did. All right. So I did exactly the opposite of what most people would recommend. Looking at discrete units on the mental side, this is a very popular character. This is the character for love in uh, Japanese or Chinese, depends on which, which, uh, which type of Chinese we're talking about, simplified or traditional. This is ai in, uh, so, in Japanese, to love. And what I've identified here are three radicals. And you could look at, let's say, 1,945 characters and become overwhelmed. In Chinese, it's much, much worse. But you could look at 1,945 and go, oh my god, how am I ever going to possibly learn this many characters? But if you chunk it down, you realize that each of those characters is made up of some combination of 217 radicals. All right? So you have at the very top something called kamuri, which is like a crown. So you could say that's a claw going through a roof. Number two is a heart. And then number three is to go or to go slowly. So you can imagine sort of clawing your way through a roof to get at a heart that's running away. Uh, <laughs> that's love. It's very endearing, don't you think? Uh, that's how you would then form the visual association to remember this character. I wish it were that easy for all characters. It isn't. Uh, but when you develop a facility for this, you can memorize characters very, very quickly. The only way you achieve that efficiently and effectively is by breaking it down to these discrete units. The, the extremes are also, I think, very, very helpful. Uh, when you're looking at scientific inquiry, when you're looking at clinical studies, uh, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the median, the mode, averages of different types. This can be helpful, but it can be also very, very misleading and not terribly instructional. So if you look on the left-hand side here, you see a pair of garden shears. And uh, if you haven't seen uh, Objectified, uh, I would recommend you see all the films done by that filmmaker. But there was an interview with Frog Design uh, also in this area. And they were giving a hypothetical example of a client coming in and saying, well, we have these garden shears. We want you to make a new version. And our average user is middle-aged woman of this type, this height, this that. And they said, we don't care about your average user. We want to know about the extremes. We want to know about the paraplegic who has these following limitations. We also want to know about the 300-pound bodybuilder who can't brush his teeth because his biceps are too big. Once we solve for those two situations, everything in between takes care of itself. 
And for that reason, I explore the fringes. I look for the outliers. And that could mean any number of things. It could mean flying stem cell growth factor in from Israel, combining it with my own platelet-rich plasma and IGF-1 and other things and injecting it up and down my spine. Only to realize that, you know what, the best option is somewhere in between where I'm just using prolotherapy, basically sugar water, to address a lot of my pre-existing injuries. It could also mean pushing it as far as I can with, with memory, uh, both recognition and recall. So there is a, uh, a, an author named Dr. Grunberg, G-R-U-N-E-B-E-R-G, who has written a number of books using the link word method. So French by association, Spanish by association, visual images combined with the vocabulary items. And so I have experimented with these books and crammed for 350 to 800 words in a given day. Now, if you consider that the functional vocabulary you need to really sound fluent in most situations is, is I would say, around 1,200 words. So that means two days of vocab. And I was able to reach about 85% recall doing that, with Spanish at least. And you realize what works, what doesn't, and what's scalable very quickly when you explore some of the fringes. All right, selection. All right, so D, Zill, right? Selection. <clears throat> the minimum effective dose, so this is the 80-20 analysis that I was referring to earlier. So whether you are looking at physical exercise, whether you are looking at memorization, I encourage you to look at the methods just like you would look at a drug. Antibiotic, the right dose gets you what you want. Too little won't achieve the effect you desire. Too much will produce side effects, whether that's overtraining, whether that's uh, some type of insomnia. There are all sorts of side effects that come with learning things if you, if you take it too far in the wrong direction. Two examples here, if Tracy Rifkin, uh, she lost about 120 pounds doing kettlebell swings two or three times per week. And I've since then ref refined that and further reduced it down to five minutes three times a week of kettlebell swings. So one set three times a week. She lost 120 pounds. And thus far, since the four-hour body came out in December, we've had many people lose more than 100 pounds since December, mid-December, which is amazing. On the right-hand side, this is just protein. And I'll give uh, a very clear example of why that's there. So we already talked about the five minutes of kettlebell swings three times per week the sample minimum effective dose. 30 grams of protein within 30 minutes of waking up. This one change, when my dad implemented this, took his monthly fat loss from five pounds per month to 18.75 in the first month. So if you want to lose body fat, very simple. It takes 60 seconds with whey protein to do that. 90 to 120 seconds of tension. So this is one set to failure for, for most muscles. Once per week, you're done. And then moving out of the physical realm, 20,000 early evangelists, that's a term I'm borrowing from Eric Reese, in two weeks for the New York Times bestseller list. All right, so targeting the right fans, so 1,000 true fans, one of my favorite pieces ever. I encourage you all to read it, Kevin Kelly. But if you hit 10,000 sales per week for two weeks straight, which allows you to hopefully dodge any dark horses or incumbents, you have a very good chance of hitting the New York Times. And you need that precise number to make intelligent decisions. Lastly, 1,200 words for conversational fluency in most languages. So these are the type of very precise minimum effective doses that allow you to select what it is you're going to focus on. Sequencing. All right, how do you put all this stuff in order? Well, it's very helpful to work from the most fundamental, obviously, to the more complicated. With something like grammar, I think it's, it's fairly straightforward. But let's look at swimming. So in swimming... In golf, also, I just read an interview today, in fact, uh, with a professional golfer who said, people come to me and they say, I have trouble with my backswing, I have 
trouble with my putt. And I look at their backswing or their putt, and it's fine. It's just that they have the sequence. They have the movement out of order. So their shoulder moves before the hip, or there's some type of sequencing issue, timing issue. So swimming, for those of you who don't know, I was unable to swim until about age 31, 32. Couldn't swim at all. I was born premature, problems with the left lung, could not swim. I was phobic. Uh, even having grown up on the beach, I could play in the waves and so forth. But laps, forget about it. At a max of maybe two laps, heartbeat would go to 200 plus. Within a week of looking at the sequencing and testing some of the assumptions, all of these are interrelated, I was able to get up to you know, between 20 and 30 laps per session. All right. A couple of things I want you to note. This is Terry Laughlin, who is the founder of Total Immersion Swimming. So first, I want you to notice he's at fuselage left. All right? So he's on this gliding left position. And notice how far below the surface of the water his left hand is. He's not reaching out and then pulling. He's actually focusing more on the driving. And one of the ways, if you want to talk about going against best practices, one of the ways that Total Immersion has you train is by doing freestyle with fists. So you're not allowed to use your hands. You actually have to make fists with both hands and then swim. You should try it. Uh, people will think you're crazy. Uh, but you test these assumptions. The other was kicking. So first thing that happens typically to people when they want to learn how to swim is you have some extremely accomplished swimmer say, here's a kickboard. Go do 20 laps. And I would just thrash like a drowning monkey. And I wouldn't move. And I was very frustrated. And I would quit. Uh, there's very little kicking in total immersion. So I want you to look at the sequence here. Very slight kick with that leg, and the only purpose is to rotate the hips, and what Terry is aiming to do is spend as much time as, much, as, much time possible in fuselage left, fuselage right. All right. And notice where his hand enters the water is right by his head, and then streamline right. All right, so sequencing. Very, very important. I will come back to a language example. Frequency. So frequency is a big, big topic. And there's a lot of time spent researching it. Ebbinghaus, forget, uh, uh, forgetting curves. There are many, many tools that can be used. Uh, Anki is one for iPhone, which is, I think, quite interesting, which means rote memorization in Japanese, as a side note. Uh, Super Memo has become uh, very famous on some level uh, because of wired coverage primarily. So Super Memo also, if you want to try to space things out in a Pimsleur-like uh, approach, I would recommend looking at that. I think frequency is arguably the least important piece of the entire puzzle. And that's controversial, I think, to take that stance. But in my experience, if you, for example, associate properly, use your existing knowledge base, and build scaffolding on that to learn whatever uh, target you have, you can get away with one exposure if you do it properly, very, very frequently. Uh, but I will give you one perhaps slightly unusual example of frequency, and that is uh, Tim Ferriss before and after anti-gravity shorts are optional. <laughs> I gained 34 pounds of fat-free mass in 28 days. And the total amount of gym time was 30 minutes twice per week. So in this case, it was literally the four-hour body on a monthly basis. That's when eating becomes your job. Uh, but the, the minimum effective dose, the necessary frequency for this, for language learning, is much less than people realize. What I would suggest for languages, again, focusing on that because it's, it can be so intimidating for people, is rather than taking classes for a year doing them twice per week, and then going to Italy, let's just say, to practice your Italian, I would suggest saving that money, 
going a week early and just cramming for seven days straight, eight, nine, ten hours a day. And I think your results will be better. Perfect. Uh, nine times out of ten. As a starter kit, if you're focusing on Spanish, German, there are a few others, and you can get a Michelle Thomas DVD set, M-I-C-H-E-L-T-H-O-M-A-S, that are actually performed by Michelle Thomas, a fantastic language learner. I would suggest you start there. That's all we're going to say about frequency. We can certainly talk about it more, but I don't think it's the, the most important or neglected piece of the puzzle. Compression. This is very important, I think, psychologically to provide a feedback loop, a positive feedback loop. Language in particular can be very, very overwhelming. There are many subjects, whether that language be a natural language, a computer language, certainly natural language, can be very overwhelming. The daunting task of tackling something that seems to have no end. So this is what I would call the eight sentence audit. And when I am diving into a new language, I've done this with uh, at least 12 languages, and coincidentally started off thinking I was bad at languages, just to make that really clear. It wasn't until sophomore year in high school when I transferred from public school in Long Island to a private school in New Hampshire, when I took Japanese and had a very good teacher and ended up learning Japanese well enough that I could go abroad as an exchange student. Prior to that, I had assumed, because I could not learn Spanish, or so I thought, that I was bad at languages. So just, just to offer that as some context. So the apple is red. Uh, it is John's apple. I give John the apple. What I will do with a native speaker, and it's important that you know how to train native speakers to teach you. If you, let's say, form an agreement with a native speaker of language X, and you're like, let's go hang out. I'll teach you English. You teach me Spanish. That will never work. It never works. I could point to somebody in the audience and just be like, what's the difference between something and anything? And just let you ramble for a few minutes. It's like, <laughs> we, we cannot explain our own native language. It's really, really hard to do. So the way you get around that is by asking a handful of questions. Uh, and I always start with, can you help me translate these sentences? Now, why these sentences? There are a few things you'll notice right off the bat. What you will identify, first and foremost, is the language subject-object-verb as Japanese would be. Is it subject, verb, object? I eat the apple, as English would be, Mandarin Chinese as well. And then you start to notice tiny little tweaks. They also give you an indication of how hard the language will be to learn. So if you want to choose a language and you want to choose carefully so that you're not spinning your wheels, you'll also notice things like uh, noun cases. So all right, the apple is red. I give John the apple. That's accusative case. So if any of you speak any German, if you play around with any Russian, God forbid, you will recognize that these, these change very, very quickly. All right. You'll also notice uh, how indirect and direct objects are used. All right. So if you want to say, damelo, right, give it to me in Spanish. If you want to use then say in that particular case, and how like le and say and interchange. All of these things you can learn from these eight sentences. And as soon as you tag a question mark onto the end of one of these, or you make it a negative, so she doesn't give it to him, you can very quickly figure out, for example, if it, that's a separate word as it would be in Chinese, like tabu chi, right, he can't go. Or if in, in Japanese, if it's a declension, right? if you actually have to conjugate. So, you know, like he, he can't go there, or she. There's no he, she, I, you in that particular sense. 
if it's a declension, if it's a conjugation, you know it's going to be harder to learn. All right. At the very bottom, I want to point out two things, specific to language learning. I must give it to him. I want to give it to her. All right. I must, I want, I need. These are auxiliary verbs. So if you want to cheat and give yourself a lot of positive feedback really, really early on, let's just take Spanish as an example. That's fantastic. You just learned how to conjugate querer, right, to want. Uh, you can say necesitar. You conjugate three or four of these verbs, and that automatically gives you access to every single verb in the language. Because you just take the infinitive of that verb, and you throw it at the end. All right, it's a really, really useful cheat. And what you find also, let's say in Spanish, or in Italian, and in a lot of Romance languages, is you could say, uh, I'm trying to think of the Italian version. Who speaks Italian here? Anybody? No? No Italians? Okay. Okay, so you can say, like, uh, ho dimenticato, right? Like, ho dimenticato tutto. Okay, so, ho dimenticato, I forgot, I have forgotten. Once you learn that in Spanish it would be haber, you learn that conjugation, then you can cheat any past tense. All right, it's fantastic. So learning the auxiliary verbs gives you this minimum effective dose to use any verb. And if you focus on, let's say, the first person, second person, singular, you're set to really communicate in a native language. That's it. So what I mean by the eight-sentence audit is I've compressed the majority of the language into one sheet. And you can do that also with, let's say, an essay or a self-introduction. You translate a self-introduction on one piece of paper, and all of a sudden you can learn just about every verb form in, let's say, the German language, and use that as your cheat sheet. So whenever you feel overwhelmed, you go back to that one sheet. Here are a few real-world examples. These are all from airplanes. So God forbid you get stuck next to me on an airplane and you speak some language that I don't speak. Uh, this is what happens. So you have the top left, that's Arabic. I was on a trip. I uh, was not to an Arabic-speaking country, but I just went kind of crazy on Arabic. And then on the right-hand side, this is Russian. So I got really into Russian. You can see, you know, I give the apple to him. I eat the apple. Right? These things are actually what I use. Uh, this is Cyrillic on the left-hand side, on the bottom left. And then 20 minutes later, I'm reading uh, a, a, a printout of a uh, Russian article alongside uh, a Ukrainian woman who was teaching me Cyrillic. And the highlights are what I messed up. That's it, 20 minutes later. Uh, and that is not a testament to what I can memorize. It's testament to asking the right questions and running through this type of deconstruction with, let's say, eight sentences. It's very simple, but it works very well. All right. Encoding. Uh, <laughs> we're going to have plenty of time for Q&A, don't worry. So encoding, I want to talk about what's involved with memorization. So I think memorization is a very nebulous term. It doesn't need to be. But there are different ways to memorize. Uh, so the, I want to give a few primary methods and contrast them and talk about the, the right way and what I would consider the wrong or very ineffective way to go about memorizing, let's say, foreign language vocabulary. Has anyone heard of the loci method? I'm sure there's somebody in here who has. So locus is singular for location or place. In Latin, loci would be multiple places. And this is also called the mental walk method of memorization. It was very widely used in the Senate in Rome. Cicero used this. So if he were, if he, if he were uh, speaking to an audience like this, he would take his talking points and make mental images that he would place around the room. And he would go from point to point using these visual cues in his mind to remind him of his topics. 
And you can do this in a physical location, but you can also use a very well-traveled route that you know by heart, and you can use this to great effect. Uh, this can be combined with what is called the consonant system, the phonetic system. Uh, Dominic O'Brien is a uh, world champion in, in some of these uh, memory uh, competitions, also as the Dominic method. What the consonant method does is it converts numbers into consonants. So, for example, 71. 7 would be a K or a K sound. And then I, because that has a single downstroke, is a T or a D. Uh, so that could be cat, it could be caught. I'll explain why one is better than the other in a moment. And using that method, even if you are bad at remembering numbers, and I consider myself intrinsically very, very poor at memorizing numbers, but once you practice the consonant system, Dominic uses uh, actual imagery of people, but he would combine, let's say, two numbers at a time. So it could be 0, 1, it could be 2, 1, 2, 3, 7, 4, it doesn't matter, uh, into an image, and then pair those together so you have four numbers per image along locations. And this is how people memorize decks of cards. This is how people memorize 10,000 digits of pi. Uh, this is how, if you wanted to, if you really feel inclined, I did this uh, in college when I was uh, studying neuroscience, so I would wake up and first thing in the morning I would take the bills out of my wallet, and so I'd have 1, 5, 10, 20, whatever it might be, and I would memorize the serial codes serial numbers, and I would time myself, and I would try to recall them forwards and backwards. Okay, so the benefit of this method is that you can recall things forwards and backwards. That's why I have ABC versus RAM. All right, with the loci method, if you try to memorize, let's just say, foreign language vocabulary thematically, and you see many books do this, and it's because they're lazy. It's because it's easier to produce books. It's not because it's a better method of learning. They'll give you thematic vocabulary, which is like animals, colors, body parts. Unfortunately, no one communicates in using like 50 body parts. I mean, it depends on where you are. Maybe in the armory here or somewhere like that. But uh, the, when you memorize things thematically in a list like that, it's much like the ABCs. So if I asked you what number in the alphabet is L, right, you would have to count through most people to determine what that is. It's very, very slow. It's not suitable for conversational speed. All right. So you need random access memory. This is part of the reason why you should, you should do two things. First is, if you're memorizing, let's just assume that English is your native language. If you look at most textbooks, they have foreign language item and then English. Now, from left to right, if, if we're using the foreign language item as our cue, that means you're only training recognition. You are not training recall. So active recall, you should switch that order, number one. Number two, particularly if you're using a textbook or something like that, number the items from top to bottom, and then go through, let's say, counting by two, counting by three from the top and the bottom so that you have a somewhat randomized order. This is very, very important. This is also why I use VizEd flashcards, vis-ed.com is the company, and they actually do the high-frequency word list analysis so that you're getting that 80-20 from the set that they send you. So I've used that for the last five or so languages that I've studied. Speaking of imagery, if you, if you want to amass a very high volume of vocabulary quickly, you're going to have to use mental associations with visual imagery, almost always, unless you're like Brain Man, which is a fantastic documentary. I'd encourage you all to check it out. 
He has synesthesia. Most of you probably don't mix your senses. You don't see, like, smell numbers and things like that. So if we're depending on visual imagery, some images are better than others. Not all images are created equal. So let's take 71 as an example. 71. So we have a few, we have a few options. Vowels are not represented in the, in the phonetic consonant system. All right, so 71 could be cat. It could be cot. It could be kit. I don't know. It could be any number of things. Coat. All right. Why would you not want to use cot? You wouldn't want to use cot because if you look at a picture of a cot and you ask someone what it is, they could say bed, they could say cot, you will mix up your answers. You will not have accurate recall. Cat? Cat is a cat for the most part. <laughs> so you want to choose images that have a singular label whenever possible. If not, it will screw up your recall, especially if you're dealing with several thousand characters. All right. This is what I would call my personal loom of language. There's a fantastic book also called The Loom of Language. Very, very dense, so I'd suggest you start with In Other Words or perhaps uh, Mind of a Nemonist. is also a fantastic book on memory. A.J. Luria is the author. So what you're looking at here is a Japanese comic book called One Piece. Has anyone here ever heard of One Piece? Hugely popular, hugely popular in Japan and, and now worldwide. So what you're looking at here is at the top left, that is the Japanese version of volume five of One Piece. This is a very popular manga in Japan. Now if you come over, you see then a German version of the exact same comic book, then a Spanish version of the exact same comic book, and then an English version at the very bottom, which is poorly translated as a side note. <clears throat> so I learned Japanese as my first real foreign language. I do not do any work to maintain my languages. People ask me, how do you keep your languages up? I can't. It would, take, it would be a full-time job. I would not be able to do anything else. If I sought that as my approach to, uh, to sustaining a certain level of fluency in these different languages. What I do, however, is rather than using English to learn each of my languages, see where this goes, I learn Japanese, and then I'll pick up the German version, and if I have any missed vocabulary items or I don't understand the grammar, I will go back to the Japanese. So I will use Japanese to learn German, and then let's say I move on to Spanish, which is exactly what I did, then I'll use the German to learn Spanish. And going, uh, moving along in that fashion, linking each to the next, uh, I'm able to lattice this framework of language that also gives me multiple cues for recalling different vocabulary items. Right? So instead of having one English, Q for, for foreign equivalent A, I now have three or four. So it increases my accuracy and it also allows me to maintain my languages. So I, sp I speak Japanese um, now just as I did when I was 15. And it's solely from this. Uh, and uh, you can go about doing this in a number of ways. Fortunately, Amazon carries a lot of these in multiple languages. Uh, you can certainly use Google Translate for quite a lot, although that's an extremely time-consuming process. Or, let's just say in the case of Japanese, you could go into a bookstore like Kinokunya, and you could buy a travel guide or phrase book for Italy, which is uh, also an example. So this is how I link languages together so I don't have to do any maintenance whatsoever. All right. So last but not least, uh, as it relates to learning, I want to talk about the self-discipline aspect. So you can have the best method, but if you don't implement the method, Obviously, it's not going to work. So you have to increase not only the efficacy, 
not only the efficiency, but the adherence. Are you going to do what you actually have to do? And the way you go about doing this is through tracking and capitalizing on loss aversion. It's more important than the method itself. All right. There's a fantastic site called Stick, S-T-I-C-K-K.com. I'd recommend you check out. So if you really want to ensure that you get something done, whether that's behavioral change related to exercise, food, language learning, you could take, let's say, $500, put that down as your stake, and if you don't accomplish what you set out to accomplish, if you don't do what you said you were going to do, you have a referee, and if they, say you, if they don't approve or confirm that you did these things, then that $500 goes off to like the uh, G.W. Bush Congressional Library or <laughs> KKK or the NRA. You know, I'm, I'm picking my anti-charities for the Bay Area. Uh, you could certainly send a tea party. Whatever your pleasure is, and uh, you make that public, you will, you will learn a lot of vocabulary, trust me. <laughs> All right. So the, the rules of behavioral change uh, are uh, as follows. These are really some of the more important. Make it conscious, number one. So if I were to take this audience, split it in half, and say, all right, half of you get personal trainers, randomly assigned personal trainers. You go to a gym, we're going to give you a personal trainer. You're all trying to lose weight. And then I say, all right, this half, we're going to give you iPhones. We just want you to take a photograph of everything you eat or drink before you eat or drink it. I'll put my money on this group having more success and more compliance. And that comes down to what uh, has been called the flash diet all right, and before picks. Uh, making it a game, I think, is very critical here. So Drucker, uh, Peter Drucker, very famous management theorist, said, what, what's get, what gets measured gets managed. It sounded fairly TOEFL. What gets measured gets managed. And from Nike Plus, uh, we, can, we can identify that five sessions is the magic number. So if you go to five classes, you go to the gym five times, you change your breakfast five times, that is when it becomes or starts to become an ingrained habit. Right? So it doesn't require this, this decision-making hit points uh, any longer at that point. So what that means is you want to rig the game so that you can win in the beginning. Meaning, rather than sitting down for your first five sessions, you say, I need to memorize 100 words in this session, make it five words. Make it very easy to accumulate those five sessions and have the positive feedback from those first five sessions. Making it competitive, uh, this is the loss aversion, uh, tea party betting, etc. You could just as easily put together a wiki and a uh, betting pool with a number of friends and then just talk an inordinate amount of trash. That's also very, very effective. And I've literally seen people you know, lose, gain 30, 40, 50 pounds doing this. And it's the only thing that will actually get them to stick with it. Last, but certainly not least, is small and temporary. So make it small, make it a trial. If you're going to, let's say, use Live Mocha, which is a great site for interacting with native speakers, if you don't want to or can't find one locally, make it a two-week trial, five sessions over two weeks. Make it temporary. Anything that you foresee as permanent or consider permanent, you're going to have terrible, terrible adherence with, typically. All right. So learning in some, doesn't have to be very complicated. This is a sign that I have over one of the walkways in my house. And then there's a big-ass knife for beheading people, which is not related to this lecture at all. Uh, so simplify. The two are not related. But <laughs> So plan big, but you need to test your assumptions. Right? So doing what people consider unthinkable, what people consider impossible, is very seldom such. And you need to ask the right set of questions. And one of them is, 
what if I did exactly the opposite of best practices? If people tell me, if Rosetta Stone tells me that it takes a lifetime that I need to spend $150 on their four or five sets, do I really need to do that? And the answer is no. You can do what I did, right? Eight sentence audit, go through Turkish, figure out that through a few set phrases like igunlar, which is like good day, actually mean good days, iakshamlar, okay, lar, plural, you can figure out very quickly what child and children would be. And then you walk up to Rosetta Stone and you can jump to level three and save yourself $400. Uh, it's a lot easier than you think. And everyone here has the mental horsepower, has the capacity to do all of what I just mentioned and far, far more. And very important, keep improvement relative. All right. So the goal is not to be the best out of everyone. The goal is to be the best version of you possible. And it takes surprisingly little time. Thank you very much. Well done. Yeah, Have a seat. All right. Am I sitting right here? Where You're there. Sit? All right. This is Kevin Kelly. Tim is, Tim is such a um, Superman that we need two. You're going to need that. <laughs> yeah, is, is it not on? You're live, I think. So Tim is such a Superman that we, uh, it takes two of us to ask questions uh, for him. Um, and uh, while Stuart is, is uh, sorting through the questions that's come from all of you. he's already sorted them, yeah, exactly. and he gave me the crappy ones. <laughs> no, <I didn't>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, you mentioned um, at one point that you were, what, were your, what your goals were, um, which was to love to be loved and to keep learning. Um, but it seems to me that you're sort of Mr. Optimizer. You're kind of optimizing everything. Um, what are you trying to optimize? Right now? Yeah, right now. Uh, well, there are a few things I'm trying to optimize. Uh, I'm looking very specifically, no big surprise, at uh, cooking and food because I'm working on the, the new project, which is the four-hour chef. And I'm not kidding, actually. It's totally true. And uh, that's, with, that's with Amazon Publishing. So they'll be launching their New York office with that book. And I really enjoy trying to find very nebulous or overcrowded spaces. So I had no idea how many cookbooks there are. <laughs> oh, my God. Because I, I didn't cook before thinking about writing this thing. And it is the overabundance of advice is just astonishing. It's atrocious. So I, I love wandering into areas where there is not too little information, but a paradox of choice as to who to follow and what to do, and then trying to simplify it. Uh, I really, really enjoy that because I think that much like in software, people are very seldom paid for removing features. <laughs> it's a big problem. You know, they're paid to add stuff. So you end up with this feature creep and all sorts of problems. But when it comes to skill acquisition or, or enjoyment, I think that you can make more progress and uh, really appreciate more by removing, making elimination the first step. So, so listening to you, one gets the impression that you don't sleep. But then again, I think, oh, wait, you must be optimizing how little you sleep. 
So, <laughs> what, what, so <laughs> I love sleeping. I'm not gonna lie. Okay. I love it. No, I, I really do love sleeping. So if I'm doing monophasic single block sleep, I really like to get nine, nine and a half hours of sleep. Uh-huh. So uh, for for people who are like, oh my god, that guy must no, no, I love sleep. I really do. <laughs> and so why aren't you trying to optimize sleep? Uh, because I feel like if if I need to cut down on my sleep to get things done, then I should probably focus on my time management first. And there's plenty of time to get the important stuff done. Plenty of time for everyone in this room to get the most important stuff done. It's just that the, the emergencies and the manufactured important stuff, which is not important, tends to encroach as soon as you resort to, let's say, using email to tell you what your calendar should look like. And uh, that's a constant battle. But uh, when I find myself trying to cut back on sleep, I know that there are deeper problems that I need to fix that are unrelated to sleep. And you made your sort of first uh, round of fame through your book, The Four-Hour Work Week. Mm-hmm. Is all the stuff you're talking about, is this work or is this play? So in the book, this is a good question. Uh, the goal is not to be idle, and never was. So if any of you have read the Filling the Void chapter... Once you have control of your time, that's the objective, then you can allocate it to where you either will have the most impact or have the most enjoyment. And for me, uh, that's teaching. I love teaching. And so I'm always going to be very, very active. If it's either primarily financially driven or I want to do less of it, I usually consider one of those two or both to be work. But uh, teaching is not work to me. I just I enjoy it so much. And the books and blogs just ended up being a vehicle for that. I thought I was going to teach ninth grade uh, in, in high school of some time. And just, um, I may still do that, who knows. But it just turned out that the, the accidental author thing kind of took me in a different direction. Question here from uh, Bob Kolpak, and uh, this relates to your Make It a Game. Mm-hmm. He says, if you tried learning competitive skills like chess or poker? I really need to learn how to play poker. I, 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 there's so many poker parties around here and I still can't play they're like yeah throw in a thousand bucks we'll play. I'm like no 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 that's not how we're gonna and as much as I say make it competitive it doesn't mean you want to be a shill for people who are gonna, gonna completely obliterate you uh, I am going to I, I enjoy chess mm-hmm. and one of my very close friends is Josh Waitzkin and for people who don't know the name if you've ever heard of Searching for Bobby Fischer the book or the movie he's the kid I mean, he's a chess prodigy and an incredible teacher. So I will be getting more into chess. I really like Go hmm. uh, positionally. I, I enjoy the game of Go. It's very, it's very complicated. Not as complicated as chess. Uh, but I haven't uh, competed in those particular games. Uh, but I, I would like to get better at chess. Japanese chess is cool, too. You can, you can slap pieces down. It's pretty wild. Well, you did do kickboxing, didn't you? That's rather oh, competitive. Oh, yeah. yeah, sports. I'm happy to compete in sports. <laughs> if I feel dumb by losing something, then I don't like it very much. I tend to be a very poor loser. <laughs> so here's a kind of a long now question from Chris. Do you have any insights about slow learning over a long period of time? Yeah, I think that there are, there are different types of learning and different types of activities. So... When people look at me as, let's say, an optimizer, they assume that it's all about achieve, 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 more and less, faster, faster, faster. But I'm not going to speed read a novel. I mean, I want to enjoy the novel. And I think that there are, there's outcome-driven behavior, and then there's process-driven behavior. 
So if part of, let's say, woodworking for you, a big part of that is the enjoyment of working with your hands, then you wouldn't want to rush that as much as you like the end product. So for me, I think that you can purposefully extend how long it takes you to learn a given skill if the process itself is in many ways more enjoyable than, than, the, than the end result. Uh, so for me, I have no objection to it. I completely disagree with uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours. I think that that makes a fantastic soundbite, but it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Uh, it depends a lot on how you define world class. But if we're talking top 5% with almost anything, you do not need 10,000 hours if you go about it the right way. And why do you think, let's talk about that, because it's an interesting uh, meme out there that 10,000 hours of deliberate practice is the way to reach that. Where do you think that's coming from? Do you think that the, the, the actual research is wrong? Do you think that this is, um, uh, that the people that they were studying were actually the wrong set of people? Where, where, where do you think this is coming from? Uh, I think that Malcolm's a great writer. He is a very fantastic storyteller. He's good at interviewing. I think that uh, he's exceptionally good at creating memes, and memes benefit from simplicity. Well, to be fair, uh, this is not coming from Malcolm. There's a, there's yeah. a, there's a set of, of researchers who yeah. are promoting that first that he was reporting. I on. think it's very hard to gather a meaningful data set. Uh, and the best laboratory for each person here is their own experience, which is why self-tracking is so important. But if, if I sat down, and I wouldn't do it to him because he has... I need to really raise the bar first, but if, if I were to sit down with Josh Waitzkin and have him spend a month with me, I would obliterate people. I, I'm absolutely 100% confident. His teaching is that good. It's astonishing, and he does it completely differently. So most people would start with, let's say, opening gambit. He'll take the board, put it down, and be like, all right, king on one side, pawn on the other, go. I, it's, it's completely from the standpoint of like standard or traditional chess, ass backwards. Uh, but... I, it would not take 10,000 hours. Uh, I think that it also very much depends, however, chess would probably bleed towards 10,000 because of the number of competitors. It's just like looking at a bell curve in weight classes in wrestling. Uh, it's good. If, you're, if you're 240 and you're actually pretty good, it's going to be a hell of a lot easier than being 150 because you have fewer people to compete against. So I think it depends a lot on the, on the, uh, the actual uh, sport or the actual competitive playing field as well. But I haven't seen, I haven't seen any compelling data uh, that, and even if the data said for most people it takes 10,000 hours, well, for most people they do things the wrong way. Or <laughs> certainly the least, <laughs> it's true, it's true. I mean, because what choice do they have? They can't be government expert in everything, so what do they do? They look at what appears to have the most commercial success, like a Rosetta Stone, and they go buy Rosetta Stone. It's not the fastest way. So is there, you did crossover between the various languages, learning German via Japanese and so on. And it's sounding like part of what you're saying here, and this is the meta-learning story, is you, you acquire a bunch of skills. And in the process, you are acquiring the skill of acquiring skills. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's pretty rewarding. It's like when the dolphin came out, she was very happy <laughs> to do the 20 <laughs> tricks. Um, <laughs> I was about to do a dolphin impersonation, man. <laughs> <laughs> Got to cut back on my caffeine. <laughs> Got a little ice wind for you guys. Uh. I suppose one of the, the attractions of the 10,000 hours is I know what I'm doing now. I'm becoming an incredible violinist, and if I practice, 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 mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'll get to Carnegie Hall. Uh, this other thing is I'll just, 
just keep on learning. Um, how are you finding that so far? You've been at it for, what, 10 years or 15 years yeah. now of, you know, learn, 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 learn. Mm -hmm. What happens over that sequence of events for people like you who do that? Yep. So over time, I get better at acquiring skills. So the mm -hmm. meta skill, right. I think that if I'm applying my 10,000 hours towards anything, it's probably that. <laughs> ah. Like the Isaac Asimov, uh -huh. I don't know, with, uh, what was, I think it was Asimov who wrote like a 15 million books. But at one point, I remember an interviewer asked him about one of the subjects he'd written about, and he had no idea. He couldn't answer it. And they go, well, you wrote a book about it. And he goes, I did. I've written a lot of books. And they go, well, where are you an expert on? And he goes, I'm an expert at being an expert. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, for me, variety is the spice of life. And that doesn't mean that I shortchange myself. I mean, I, 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 I feel like I can get to a very high level in these various fields in a relatively short period of time, certainly a year or less. And... Uh, the incremental gains past that point are just not appealing to me. I think it's a very individual choice. Uh, if you are, through God-given skill, uh, capable of becoming the best in the world at X, mm -hmm. I, have a, I feel typically people know that early on. Hmm. I mean, if you're Tiger Woods and you're, 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 instead of drawing pirate ships, you're drawing trajectories of different irons. I'm not kidding. I saw this drawing. It's like, yeah, that, okay, that's not normal. That's not normal. Uh, but for most, for most people, I feel like they have the capacity to be exceptionally good in the top 5% in the world in many different areas, but they may not have or be able to identify the raw attributes that are going to push them into, you know, bobsledding because there are only so many things that you can try. Uh, and, and, and for me, I just, to, to try to become, I could try to become perfect in Japanese, which of course will never happen, because I won't be perfect in English, uh, or I could, I could get to the point where I can converse like this in maybe, you know, 20 languages by the end of my life. And it's just more appealing. What kind of things have a lasting appeal? So you learn kickboxing, but I suspect you're not kickboxing a lot right now. No. But some no. of these other things you learned, you maybe are carrying on. What kind of stuff has that st carrying, staying capacity? Mm, languages, thematically, mm -hmm. languages. Uh, also, that's true with sports. I, I'm not kickboxing anymore, uh, but I'm, I'm still fascinated by uh, ping pong, of all things right now. But... Uh, Ping pong. Yeah, yeah. You're playing a lot of it. Boy, you are competitive. I'm just, no, I'm just becoming fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. I, haven't, uh, I haven't really jumped into it yet. But are, there, are there things that you have tried to learn but Aha. were unable to? Or even with your meta uh, skill of learning? <laughs> can, you, can you sing? No, no, no. no. <laughs> I, I'm not confident. I'm very self-conscious about my voice. And I think the, pri the primary prerequisite for becoming good at learning skills is being confident that you can do it. And uh, I think part of the reason I get better at it over time is because I'm less intimidated by things. Uh, but 10 years ago, I mean, I tried to learn how to play basketball. Horrible. I mean, the JV coach was like, kind of looked like a caveman. Like, you might want to go back to wrestling. And I was just like, oh, sorry, sorry. And went back to wrestling. And so I was always very self-conscious about not being able to shoot a basketball. And uh, that is no longer the case. I'm not good, but because I have a method that I know works. Mm -hmm. And I'm not intimidated by it because I know I can overlay that onto that skill. Singing, do not have the confidence. So uh, are there, is part of metal learning knowing when not to pursue something? I mean, you're sprinting down a path. What are the messages that 
I've done my five sessions, and guess what? <laughs> this yeah. sucks. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, you know, Irish Gaelic. I mean, Gaelic Irish or Irish Gaelic, depending on what I said, would be a good example. Uh, because so few people actually use it. If you want to go hang out in Spittle on the west coast of Ireland, okay, you can like hang out with some old dudes and <laughs> drink some whiskey or something, but that's it. And the language itself, because it was uh, Romanized pretty much well after the fact, there's no phonetic correlation. It's a huge pain in the ass. Hmm. Uh, so for me, the question is oftentimes, how much will I enjoy this? The process, the process of learning itself, how much fun will this be? And if the answer is a lot of fun, I don't care if I retain something for a very long period of time. So that, that eight-sentence audit approach that I take, I've done that for Turkish, I've done it for Greek, I've done it for, uh, I've done it for uh, like uh, Kosa, or I can't even, I still can't do the clicks, but I've done it for African languages. I don't remember any of it. But it improved my travel experience. It gave me such an incredible hmm. uh, extra credit experience while traveling. Just having 10 or 20 words, it was absolutely worth doing it at the time. Uh, but there are certainly things that I drop. Absolutely. So here's a, a question from Alexander Rose. Um, you were mentioning that you like to go into a place that's overwhelming with information. Um, so another overcrowded space, says uh, Xander, is parenting advice. Have you thought about the four-hour child? <laughs> Sounds rather morbid, doesn't it? Uh, I, uh, God, my poor children. Like it's, it's like living with B.F. Skinner or something. I, I, uh, I feel like someday it could happen, who knows. But until I actually have the experience, it's easy to talk about parenting, right? But uh, you know, until I have like the three-year-old who storms off and just creates complete hell in the grocery store, I don't think that I'm, I, I won't be qualified to speak on Start it. Start with the four-hour grandparent. Right, right, right. <laughs> but it could happen, it could happen. Stranger things have happened. So um, this is a more technical uh, thing, but it has the larger question about... Um, the origins of your kind of interest in meta-learning. But where did the, um, the eight-sentence audits come from? Is that something that you developed? Is that something that was out there that you just grabbed? And are, is this, the larger question is about your ongoing agenda of meta-learning. Is this something that you've sort of always done but didn't know you were doing it, or was this a conscious thing to start to acquire these things? It started off very random in the sense that I would sit down and have a conversation with someone about their language and I would ask them, how do you say this? Oh, well, how do you say that? How do you ask this? And it was whatever came to mind. And I just realized over time, looking at the responses, that certain questions yielded far more interesting answers than others. And uh, my fantasy with language in the, in the early days was if I could get one page, mm -hmm. some type of short story or self-introduction that would incorporate all of the main grammatical structures in the language, all the main conjugations. And so I would know that if I learned that page, I know the language. And it became uh, very time-consuming to try to do that <laughs> with different languages, not to mention pretty unreadable. But by lining up the questions, I could, I could identify 
the main mm -hmm. characteristics of the grammar, mm -hmm. which is the skeleton upon which then you have to put everything else. Right. And uh, old-fashioned, traditional language learning gets a bad rap, and people are like, oh, you don't have to learn grammar. You should learn, ki you should learn language the way kids learn language, which is the biggest bullshit nonsense ever. Like, you're not going to learn like a kid learn, number one. Number two, it's just complete nonsense, so don't buy that. Uh, you shouldn't. It's slow and miserable. Uh, but the, uh, there is absolutely, I think, from, from a results-oriented standpoint, benefit to, to addressing grammar. And that's one of the benefits that you get when you repeatedly look at different languages is you realize, all right, the subjunctive is this. It's no longer intimidating to me. It's like a hypothetical. If I had a million dollars, I would do this. All right, great. You can do that in Spanish. You can do it in German. And all of a sudden, if you have one set of examples, you can leap right to the next very easily. So, so you have phenomenal success as an author, something that you've actually meta-learned about how, how to engineer the, the bestseller list. But nonetheless, you have a very popular blog and lots of people who are your students in some sense. What are, are they teaching you anything about oh, how to yeah. learn, and what have you been learning from the people trying to follow what you've been teaching them? Oh, I, I learn more from my readers on a weekly basis than I've taught them to date easily, easily. Because I have, uh, particularly if I poll on, let's say, Facebook, 100,000 plus people, or on Twitter, and I ask for the best A, B, or C, whatever it might be, I mean, I can get qualified outstanding responses that I would not be able to find on Google within 20 minutes. So that's information, but, but is it changing how you learn? Is it changing oh, your absolutely. skill set? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the fastest way for me to find a short list of candidates for the best of anything. And so in terms of testing, if I'm going to be testing different methods for any number of things, cooking would be one example, um, running might be another example, I will crowdsource the best responses, and it absolutely changes how I approach things. But you know, one of the terms that gets sort of thrown around my name, which I think is hysterical, uh, in the New Yorker recently, like the, the, the word guru, and it bothers me a lot. The it, word what? Guru. Guru. Which bothers, makes me think of uh, Mike Myers, but it bothers me a lot. <laughs> it bothers me a lot because my objective, it, the last thing I want is for people to feel like they need to come to me for answers or look to me for answers. My goal is to make myself obsolete with every book that I write for whatever that subject matter is. And that's, and that's my goal, is to make people independent learners. Uh, so uh, I, I, I uh, perhaps a weird way to look at it, but I think... Okay, let's jump up a scale. Here's a question from Richard Lee. How will the increased rate of learning change society. There's all kinds of stuff going on. There's what you're doing, there's Khan Academy, there's the yeah. uh, you know, university courses are going online, uh, there's an intelli artificial intelligence course from Stanford that's got, I don't know, some thousands of people taking yeah. it in real time as it's being taught. Uh, what's all this doing? I think that the biggest change I see is if you've lost the birth lottery in some fashion, and don't have access to incredible schooling or peer group, whatever it might be, if you're a self-starter and you have a smartphone, which I mean, billions of people have, mm -hmm. uh, you have access to some of the best instruction in the world. 
that's a very new thing. And it's very exciting. We'll still have as many dumbasses as ever, probably uh, more than more than ever. I think it'll be look more like idiocracy than sort of uh, an enlightened world. But the people who are self-starters, I think, will have the ability to find the quality instruction, and that's that's extremely exciting to me. It sounds um, like you're sort of presuming that self-starting is a talent, and a, but I suspect you want to make the self-starting become a skill that can that somebody can nab and run with and to some extent yeah. that's happening with your readers because they're kind of we had this with the whole earth catalog people kind of slumping along doing the thing they see this thing which opens a bunch of doorways for them yeah. and they fan out in all directions mm -hmm. and are grateful for that door being shown to them and they did the rest thank you so in a sense your books and, and lectures and so on have this quality I guess we're starting to look younger and more globally. Um, mm -hmm. Somebody to whom it has never occurred to self-start because they've never seen it. Right. Um, or they're in a really, really traditional culture where self-starting is, is actually uh, real, you know, punished. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that as these things come slipping in through the cell phones and the, the other uh, avenues that are getting to everybody in a sense, urbanizing the entire world, that kind of urban sense of possibility. This is the thing you say technology does, is it opens up options for people. Mm -hmm. And so I'm getting a kind of a, a sense here that this kind of learning is what is coming with the urbanization, with the acceleration of technology, and that new techniques such as the ones you're promoting are emerging from that whole process and are part mm -hmm. of it. That's not a question. I don't know what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you. I, I would say that uh, with, <laughs> with tremendous new possibilities for learning also come costs. So the demand uh -huh. for, let's say, software. Uh, there are a fantastic article for those of you who haven't read it. Uh, Mark Andreessen wrote a piece on, I think it's Why Software is Eating the World on the Wall Street Journal. Fantastic piece. Uh, and it points out the tremendous opportunities that software provides, uh, low-cost Silicon Valley startups taking on these huge incumbents and destroying them, in effect. Uh, it, it's, it's tremendously revolutionary, but at the same time, we're going to have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are displaced and whose set of job skills are completely irrelevant in a world that's run by bits and bytes. So the, the onus of learning... I think is as much a, a responsibility and for many people will be a curse uh, as it is enabling. But that's, that's Darwinism for you. And, have, in your own life, have you noticed the downside to your emphasis on learning? Uh, is, I mean, is, is, there, is there a cost that you feel yourself? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I've, I've been on the verge of nervous breakdown for the last five days going through these damn cookbooks. There's so much. It's just, I have like informational indigestion all day long. It's, uh, it's horrible. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the bullet I take for all of But the, uh, I, I, I think that information overload and uh, the overwhelm that people feel and the apnea that they experience when they open the inbox and they're like, oh, God, I just, another 80 email. You know, I think that 
that is a, a very significant problem. And you can look at the, the biochemical costs of that. Obviously, I've done the physical tracking, and it's very easy to correlate the, uh, the information overload with higher cortisol, screwed up glucose values. I mean, there is a physical cost. And uh, I, I do think that as much as people talk about the, the democratization of information, it's like, all right, Oprah might go the way of the dodo, that's fine, but you're going to have a thousand new Oprahs and each one is going to command a small army, much smaller army, they'll be just as loyal. And the, the world, I think, needs, and certainly I look for, curators in different areas. Uh, but uh, I do think that the excess of information, there's always more information than attention, always. And that there are real costs and penalties, I think, if you don't learn how to single task and firewall your information intake. So, so we're always trying to encourage speakers to take the, the very long term. So if we imagine this acceleration of learning and you accelerate it in another 100 years or 200 years, mm -hmm. what does that feel like to you or what does that seem? Does that seem, um, I mean, what happens? Two hundred years. Two hundred years. I think I have. I'm feeding on spam, and I have assault rifles, and I'm protecting a compound somewhere. No. Uh, it's after Ray Kurzweil sends me my immortality pack. Uh, I. Two hundred years. I don't know. I, I think that. I don't even. I think that access to. Let's just say a hundred. A uh, hundred years. Uh, I, I think I, it's. The marketing of knowledge will be very important. So the lowest common denominator will always have more demand than Khan Academy. <laughs> like, I mean, I saw a headline today. It went all over the place. It's called, uh, what was it? Badger eats dwarf porn actor who resembles Gordon Ramsay. I'm not kidding. And this is from, and it went everywhere. And people were going ballistic over this. And uh, I, if I had to sell calculus on Khan Academy, like, that's tough competition. <laughs> so if you want to educate people or if they want to educate themselves, it's going to depend on uh, very astute people who are able to raise the signal to, to noise ratio with the important stuff. And that's only going to get harder. Uh, so I'll be very curious to see how it turns out. But uh, I do think that... If you look at the silos of expertise in different geographic areas in the world, uh, I think it will be much more dispersed. And I think you'll have breakthrough discoveries and, and developments in many different spaces all over the world uh, due to, due to mm -hmm. broadband on smartphones, among many other things. I think uh, I'm really looking forward to it. You will also have uh, very dis distributed, uh, sophisticated threats biological warfare, uh, terrorism. Uh, I mean, that's going to scale at the same rate, sadly. But. I've, one link that I get between you guys is you're both into the kind of the quantified self, the, the oh, yeah. measuring, you know, what the first one. behavior and body and everything is up to. And um, it sounds like that doesn't go away. You are keeping an eye on certain things, with, or you just do it while you're getting to a goal. In other words, saying is, is how important is this idea of measuring things to, to, to your learning, or do you do oh, it critically? Critically important. 
critically, critically important. So, for example, uh, right now I'm traveling with a uh, six-inch chef's knife and uh, on the port airplane? portable cutting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not, not carry-on. I've made that mistake once already. <laughs> TSA does not like the big knives. Uh, and I'll, I'll get, let's say, celery and measure it out and get equal length sticks and test different chopping techniques for uh, accuracy and speed and whatnot. Oh, look at this. Wow. Man after my own heart. Techniques. Look at this. I would not want to get cut with this guy. It's not as sharp as it should be. But what are your yeah. techniques that you're learning, for example? Uh, well, there, there are. I'm using also different knives. I'm looking at... Uh, Different with rocking versus top down versus slightly back then forward. I'm looking at chef's knife versus santoku versus Chinese chef's knife versus mm. butcher's knife. It gets expensive, those damn knives. They're expensive. The Sur tabla is not the, the economy class. The idea is that, is that you will time and measure and, and actually try to quantify yeah. how fast you can or Yeah, I'll say for this budget and this skill level, like this is the knife you need, period, end of story. Question for Kevin in context of this. You've heard his rap and seen his activities. Mm -hmm. Where does he fit in the sort of spectrum of quantified self people out there? Um, I, think he, I think Tim is right in the middle of, of the quantified self crowd, which um, vary from, from those who um, are quantifying themselves but don't know why. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, there's a lot of that. <laughs> Uh, to, to a lot of people who um, are very, very specific about one thing that they're following for a very deliberate reason. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think Tim is, is, knows why he's doing things, and he's, but he's doing a lot what of What are you quantifying? I'm, I'm, I'm actually not a quantifier. I'm, I'm, I <laughs> am, uh, I'm interested in the phenomenon because I think this is the new uh, normal. Yeah. I, I think the fact that, that um, these machines, devices, are quantifying for us. Right. Uh, generating data for location, genes, uh, all these implants that Tim has been experimenting with, uh, monitoring the idea of monitoring your vitals 24 hours mm -hmm. a day, every day, instead of once a year, mm -hmm. um, are, are, are going to be basically what is normal. So I'm yeah. looking at those early adopters not as one, but as an observer, just to see where, where the rest of us are going to be going. So there's... More and more robots are doing it. I mean, you can have Google Analytics tell you what, you know, how your blog is doing, what's actually going on at a structural level, I'm pretty soon. I assume in Japanese toilets now, they'll tell you all sorts of things about yourself. <laughs> yeah, they'll talk to you. They're very calming voices. <laughs> Toto toilets are fantastic. Uh, the and you, and you <laughs> scared the hell out and of you me. you understand it, right? When I was 15, and I'm like, this is like the Star Trek Enterprise. How do I do this with this thing? And you understand them. Yeah, they're great. I love it. Uh, Japan, I love Japan. But uh, the, the self-tracking will become an opt-out, not an opt-in. And uh, you see that already with geotagging. I remember logging into Gmail today on, on my iPhone, and I was so pissed that it wouldn't let me proceed without agreeing to uh, Google Plus for tracking my location. I was just like, Ugh. I knew it was coming. But that will become true with physical data. That would become true with learning software. If it doesn't track you and give you feedback and tell you where to improve and how to tweak things, they're going to go away uh, because they'll be supplanted by superior software and it will just become the new normal. Mm. And uh, for the time being, 
I think the experimentation is a lot of fun, and you can actually shape that future to some extent. That's right. Uh, and I, I do think that I'm right in the middle, though. You have people who are tracking somewhat compulsively, and I do plenty of compulsive stuff, but they're tracking something compulsively, and they don't know why. Then you have the people who are tracking one thing in particular because they have a problem with it or a health issue. And then I think right in the middle, you have people like me who are going out to learn about something purely out of curiosity. So they'll put an implant in, or probably not do that, but you know, put on a Zio at night or something like that. And where the phenomenon becomes really, really fascinating is when, before it becomes opt-out, you have groups of people, let's just say thousands of people on a site like Cure Together, tracking the same thing. Then you can get some really compelling data. And uh, I think that's where clinical research is headed, certainly. Uh, we'll see. So in the beginning of uh, four-hour work, by the way, the cover of the four-hour work week is a guy in a hammock. That's not you, it seems. What was that? The cover of the four-hour work week is there's a guy oh, in a hammock. Oh, the hammock. Yeah. Yeah. Taking these uh, mini retirements and so on. Oh. You're doing a lot of those? I did one uh, just, a, just a few months ago. Before jumping into looking at this new book, I took three weeks to four weeks in Colombia with no phone, no email, no calendar. That was nice. Uh, so I, I do take my own advice. You still uh, speak well of that. Good. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd say I travel four months a year, probably two, two and a half, three months are pleasure. Good. And uh, that, that'll go up. I mean, after this next book, I'll take a nice little break. So the other thing, and there's a question here from Anonymous. What project of yours? Those are always the best questions. <laughs> Who are you? What project of yours are you currently most excited about? You put that in early in the book is you know how you decide what to do and goals and stuff like that. What yeah. actually excites you these days? What, I'll add an element to it. What surprises you that it excites you? Cooking. I hate cooking. I hated cooking, much like swimming. And I've just realized it's a fantastic vehicle and prism for learning about food and culture and mm. farming and livestock and animals and the entire animal kingdom. And it's really a fascinating prism. Never had any interest in cooking. And uh, now I'm just obsessed with it. So I'd say that that's at the top of the list right now. Otherwise, uh, India... You want to do television. That sounded like it. Yeah. Is that kind of a straightforward ambition thing or is it something that excites you about it? Oh, no, it excites me because I've seen the power of visual medium in, as a teaching tool. Mm -hmm. I mean, Khan Academy, perfect example. I, mm -hmm. I feel like the printed word is fantastic. And uh, books, you know, books as they exist today, still occupy a very unique place in the minds of readers. Mm -hmm that TV does not occupy. But using, whether it's documentary or online shorts, it might not be on broadcast. It could be on YouTube, it could be elsewhere, but mm -hmm. uh, particularly seeing the result of the book trailer that I made for The 4-Hour Body, which was 60 seconds long. I mean, that just blew my mind, the impact that that had. Mm -hmm. Blew my mind. And if, if that's what I was able to do, and I did the storyboarding and hired the whole team, uh, if I could just ex expand that to, let's say, 10, 15 minutes at a time and tackle one skill each, number one, I would love doing it. It would be fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, number two, I think it would capture not only the audience that I have already, but an entirely new audience. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm just looking for an Archimedes lever that allows me to have the, the, the greatest positive impact that I can mm -hmm. uh, during this short time that I have. So. 
And I think I think TV or something like TV makes a lot of sense. And what would that victory success look like for you? Uh, there, there's no uh, number, like a million, two million, ten million people. It's just doing, having a greater impact, you know, tomorrow than I did today. It's just a continual Kaizen type of improvement thing for me. Uh, I, I feel like that's that's the the best I can do, but the, the footnote I would add to that is that I don't want to simply, this is cliched, but it's true, I don't want to necessarily give people, you know, a painkiller, the equivalent of giving the person a fish and feeding them for a day. I would like to make as many people independent, you know, critically thinking problem solvers so that they can go teach other people. That's the ideal, is that you have this cascading effect where teachers are teaching people to be teachers who are then teaching other people to be teachers. That would be my ideal. One million Tim Ferrisses. <laughs> oh, God. What a nightmare. Uh, One thousand teachers. I think that, uh, I mean, I want people to be a lot better than I am at teaching. And I think that, you know, that's the only way that things get better. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see one, one step at a time. Moving right along. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Forward TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.